week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1945, Robert van Enam won Ghent-Wevelgem for the third and final time. The first edition of the race from Ghent to Wevelgem took place in 1934. For the first two editions, the race was 120 kilometers and was open only to riders without a professional contract. In 1936, the route was increased to 168 kilometers and only independent riders were allowed race. These were riders without contracts who took part in both amateur and professional events. The first two independent editions of Ghent-Wevelgem were won by a Ghent local boy, Robert van Enam. The Battle of Belgium took place in 1940 and the German occupation followed and as was the case with most cycling races during this period in history, Ghent-Wevelgem was put on hold indefinitely. But it returned in 1945, this time as a professional race for the first time. Almost 10 years after his first victory, Robert van Enam was back and searching for his third win. The race, which was now 200 kilometers long, ended up with a six-man group sprinting it out for the win. The judges on the finish line attributed the win to Maurice van Herzel, who grew up in the Flemish Ardennes. But 10 days after van Herzel's victory, a photograph of the finish in Wevelgem emerged. The photo clearly showed that it was Robert van Enam who crossed the finish line first. The evidence was subsequently presented to the race organizers, who duly took the win from Maurice van Herzel and awarded it correctly to van Enam. Three wins by Van Enam is still a Ghent-Wevelgem record, although it has been equaled since by three other riders, Rick Van Looy, Eddie Merckx and Mario Cipollini. Welcome to the episode five of This Week in Cycling History with me, John Galloway, and my colleague, Killian Kelly. Look at that, we're trained professionals, aren't we? Uh, we've wandered right back to the, the early days of cycling with this one, Killian. I mean, you must have been rooting about in, in the bins at the back of people's houses in Belgium to get these facts. Yeah, yeah, it's very difficult to find stuff under all the pre-war uh, races. You know, it, it's ridiculously easy to find stuff about uh, anything that happened after the internet was, was born, you know. But, um, you know, the further back you go, the, the harder it is to find out this this stuff and uh, actually, there's some sources that still say that Van Herzl won that race. You know, I, I, I kind of would, be, would tend to believe that it was Van Nam was actually awarded it. But, you know, there's conflicting reports. So I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm open to, uh, to, to being wrong on that one. But um, it, it, it is very difficult to, to find out this stuff, which is a, which is a pity. And uh, we, we've talked before ourselves, like there's just so many Tour de France books out yeah. there and there seems to be one every year there's another one rehashing the, the same old stories i mean they're great stories like but you know they've been written and uh, yeah you can only hear about a man fixing his forks at a forge for, you know once or twice before you get bored with it yeah i mean they are fantastic stories but you know i mean it's definitely a gap in the in the in the market anyways is a real uh history of the classics or even a history of one of the classics like Paris roubaix or or uh, the Tour of Flanders, you, you know, there's definitely um, s- space there for, for a, a good, good English language book on that. But but speaking of new English language books, there's a, there's a couple of books out this week about Eddie Merckx, which is another gap in the market, which is amazing that there has never been an English language book about Eddie Merckx before. And, and now there's two two out this week. Yeah. They're like buses. They both come along at once. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that because, you know, you see Eddie Merckx's name on every single results list of every race. And... Uh, I actually know very little about him. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, everybody talks about Merckx as, you know, the god of cycling, greatest cyclist of all time. But you're right. I mean, there's been a real dearth of English spoken histories of his career. And 
I think it was Michael Hutchison I saw tweeting today that suddenly, you know, he's got enough background info to write his own biography of Merckx. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be reading both of those. I mean, it's, it's essential reading, I th- would think, for any cyclist. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And, I mean, they're two great writers as well. Um, I hope I get this right now. W- William Fotheringham has written yep. the one called Half Man, Half Bike. Yep. And Daniel Freep has written the other one called The Cannibal. And um, I don't know about you, like, I, I read all of the cycling magazines all of the time and uh daniel freeb for me is is really really um a top top uh journalist like he he wrote he wrote this article um in pro cycling magazine two editions ago the one with marcel kittle on the front and it was about the track writer ilio kisa I, I i keep the magazines you know i i have loads of them at home and i keep them and i go back to them but the reason i go back to them is to find out bits of information that i, I may have remembered and, and i go back to find out about them but this article about ilio kisa it's the first time i've ever read a cycling article in a magazine and gone back and read it because it was just so good it was just the way he had written it was just it was a remarkable piece of writing and if you haven't read it I, i'd recommend going out and reading it so you know just just that has made me really excited about reading this Eddie Merckx book because um uh, I, I don't think he's ever written a, a book before. Um, maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I, I can't think of one. I mean, I'm really excited he, about that book too. He ghost he ghost wrote Cavendish's book. I think was the was the only other book he had a, he had a hand in. So I'm really looking forward to it. You mean Mark didn't write it himself? Shock, shocking. Yeah. <laughs> um, I tell you one thing that really surprised me actually, because this I mean, you're talking about Gain Vevelgem as it straddled the wars yeah. or World War Two, and it amazes me that. Some of the riders then were were put through the upheaval that tore Europe apart, and still managed to to win at both ends of it. I'm thinking of Bartali and Coppi in the Tour and the the Giro. So I mean, these were these were hard hard men and hard times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that they even got back into the saddle after after the war was was impressive enough, and to 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 keep on winning as they had done years previously, it, it, they're they are amazing feats. Now. Gent-Vevelgem isn't, we, we talk about races which are, you know, monuments of the sport and as if they're fixed in time, but Gent-Vevelgem isn't one of them, it's been mucked about a fair bit, hasn't it? It has, yeah, and I suppose I must put in the usual disclaimer that this week in cycling history for, for that uh, pre-war edition, that, you know, some of those races were actually in September and then they moved to July and it took a while for it to settle in its late March, early April date where it is now, but it it, it, uh, it used to be a lot longer as well and it was much more of 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 a race that was on par with the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. But now, um, I know it's different this year, but you know, up until recently, it was on the Wednesday in between the two weekends of the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. And uh, a lot of the time, uh, the, the riders that would target both the, both of the two monuments, Flanders and Roubaix, wouldn't even ride Gent-Wevelgem because yeah. it was just it was, it was too close to, to both of their ma- major goals the risk of, of crashing or, or getting injured um, was too great. So the, the the real preparation race that they used to get ready for the two Monument Classics was the E3 prize, unusually enough. So if you look back in the winners of the E3 prize, there's actually more, you know, more prestigious names than on Gent-Wevelgem. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I remember hearing Stephen Roach talk before. This is maybe slightly different. He was talking about the Tour de France when he said that, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, because it's the biggest race and you have all the big names. Um, it, it's not easy from a physical point of view, obviously, but it's it's quite easy to guess what's going to happen from day to day. You know, it's quite easy to predict what teams are going to do what. 
And, yeah. But he said in smaller races, say, I don't know, like the Tour of Romandy or the Four Days of Dunkirk or one of these ones, everybody thinks they can win rather than the Tour de France where only maybe five or six riders actually think and have a chance of winning. So it, these smaller races become really, really hard to control. Everybody wants to win it. And nobody actually knows who's who's trying to win it on the day. And I think Ken Wevelgan might have suffered from a, a little bit of that over the years. Like I know Tom Boonen, he's one of the bigger names who have won it. Um, he's won it twice now. But he, he says he hates it. You know, <laughs> after he won it um, last year, he kind of had to backtrack on that and say, well, you know, it's not too bad. But, you know, he did say he didn't enjoy it. And Bernard Eisel won it the year before. And he I remember reading it that he, he said he never enjoyed it either. So I, I don't know whether that plays a little bit of a part of it, that it's just it's so hard to control. With the Tour of Flanders, you know, you might get on the day 10 or 12 guys who really, really think they can actually win this race. Whereas with Ghent Wevelgum, you know, where you get your kind of B-list, well, maybe B-list. Yeah, pro-county teams who think they've got a go. Yeah, I mean, you might get 50 or 60 guys who think, you know what, I, I can't win the Tour of Flanders, but Jesus, I could give Ghent Wevelgum a real go here. And it just maybe becomes this uh, much more harder to predict race than Flanders. And uh, maybe, I'm guessing, but maybe that's why riders don't enjoy it as much. It can make for really good viewing, though. That, yeah, and that's true as well. Yeah, just I mean, with, you know, with the Tour of Flanders uh, the following week, you know, we expect to see the usuals on the front, Cancelar, Boone and Gilbert. We expect them to all be there. But with Kent Vavagum, we just don't know, which, which no. is exciting. In 2002, it was announced that Richard Varanc would use the services of Jeannie Longo's husband, Patrice Caprelli. The details provided at the time were that Caprelli would help Domo Farm Freed rider Varanc work on his time trialling skills by improving his position on the bike, as well as getting advice on the correct choice of equipment. Varanc was one of the central figures of the Festina affair, which marred the 1998 Tour de France. One of the team soigneurs, Willy Voe, was caught crossing the border from Belgium into France with a car full of drugs, which included EPO, growth hormones and testosterone. In the ensuing months, while many of his teammates admitted to doping, Varonk steadfastly refused to admit anything. Only when the threat of serious jail time became very real did Varonk finally admit to taking performance-enhancing drugs. Although he admitted taking EPO, more than two years after Voe was caught red-handed, he maintained that he did not knowingly take it. As a result, Varonk was suspended for six and a half months. The case of Patrice Caprelli is much more recent. In late 2011, the former US cyclist Joe Papp revealed to L'Equipe that Caprelli had ordered EPO from Papp in 2007, saying he was purchasing it for his wife, Jeannie Longo. L'Equipe also revealed that police had linked the purchase of EPO to Caprelli's bank account in 2010 and 2011. Caprelli is currently under investigation by the French Cycling Federation. Longo, who still competes at age 53, was also recently cast under a shadow as she missed three drug tests. This is the same infringement for which Johan Afredo of Francais de Jure is currently suspended for, but Longo was excused as a result of a technicality. As the news of both Longo and Caprelli's misdemeanours hit the headlines, the Velo Nation website spoke to an anonymous competitor of Longo's, who said, I don't think any of this surprises the peloton. I've never had a doubt, not because of her age, but because of her behaviour and the change in her physique from 1989 onwards. Varanc is an unrepentant doper who lied directly to cycling fans for more than two years, and Caprelli is a known supplier of EPO. Looking back to 2002 and seeing that Varanc was seeking Caprelli's assistance, as cycling fans, it is extremely hard to look at this fact and not to be cynical about it.
I never actually liked Veronica that much. He, we, um, my eldest boy Angus was seven when uh, he and I came to Dublin to watch the the prologue of the tour, and uh, I'm sure you were there at the time. I wasn't, John. It's still a very <laughs> sore point. I was in France. <laughs> Where were you? I was in France when the Tour de France was in Ireland. I was in France. Very nice timing, mate. No, no. Like it literally went past the top of my road on stage one. And uh, I did. I didn't see it. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll gloss over that quickly. Um, looking, I mean, looking at the '98 tour, we had no idea watching that prologue what was going to happen. You know, when Willie Voigt crossed crossed the border and was caught out. And I suppose it's really the point where Veronk showed his true colours by lying through his teeth for two years. And then later on, he goes to Caprelli, who we subsequently find surprise, surprise. Um, it's been by EPO and stuff, so it it looks like he didn't change his stripes. Well, that's that's what it appears, you know. And you know, there is a little bit of putting two and two together and getting five here. But as cycling fans, we've just been through through so much. I mean, I, I don't think we can be blamed for being so cynical about these things. You know, like I said in the piece, how can we not look at this and and think that's what he was up to? You know. Um, the only thing that's really sad about this whole affair for me is the fact that it's. It's actually nothing to do with Veronk, who I'm going to stop talking about because, as I say, I do really like him. It's the fact that Jenny Longo's uh, heritage has really been been destroyed by this whole affair with her husband. Yeah, and like Jesus, her her career just goes back so long. Like, um, it's just one of the things I saw when I was doing a bit of research was that she's won French national titles in five different decades. Like that, that's crazy. She won her. First... She's been racing a bike for longer than you've been alive. Yeah, that's true. She, I mean, she won her first uh, national road race title in 1979, and, uh, and and she won the time trial title last year. Like that's it's 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 beyond belief. And she's 53 now, and you know, and, and she's been pre-selected for the Olympics again this year, which is <laughs> which is crazy as well. But uh, it, it really has um, cast a shadow over her whole career now, which is unfortunate. Anyway, talking about one Frenchman who uh, eventually admitted doping, um, I've, I've had enough of Veronk and, and Caprelli and, and, in fact, Longo just now, so we'll move on to your last piece, which is about another Frenchman who, uh, who's admitted doping, but somebody who, who remains a hero of mine, and particularly a hero of uh, your friend and mine, Mr Scott Oro. Wearing the race leader's yellow jersey, Laura Fignon lost the final time trial of her French stage race, which she had first won six years previously, and in doing so lost the race overall by eight seconds. If you're thinking you've heard the old story of the 1989 Tour de France too many times before, think again, because Fignon lost this race in 1988. It was in the Criterium International in Antibes in the south of France. This race consisted of three stages in 1988, one rolling, one hilly and one time trial, just as it still does today. Moreno Argentan had won the opening stage, but it was Fignon who took control on the final morning by winning the hilly stage just ahead of Robert Miller and Eric Broikink. Fignon held a five second lead heading into the afternoon time trial. Coming off the back of recent victory in Milan San Remo, he was clearly in good form and was supremely confident that he would take the overall victory. But Broikink, the rising star of Dutch cycling, had other ideas. Broikink had reason to be angry as he mounted his time trial bike in the afternoon stage. The official timekeepers had attributed Fignon a two-second gap ahead of himself and Miller on the morning stage, a gap which Broikink was less than happy about. 
He felt that Finjan Miller and himself should all have been awarded the same time at the end of the stage. This meant that Finjan held a 5 second overall lead over both Broiking and Miller heading into the 8km test. Broiking said in defiant mood before the race, I'll take a second a kilometre out of Finjan against the watch. As it happened, Broiking took nearly 2 seconds a kilometre out of the Frenchman, which was almost exactly the same rate of time loss which Le Monde inflicted on Finjan in that final time trial at the Tour de France one year later. I'm serious, actually. Scott just mentioned Laurent Fignon to him and his eyes missed over and he, he gazes into the middle distance with a wistful look in his face. Yeah. Huge hero of his. And in fact, a, a greatly respected rider of mine. My, I was a, a big fan of Greg LeMond at the time for my sins. Uh, so Fignon was the kind of evil man waiting in the wings. But what a hell of a rider he yeah, was. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate. Like so many others, like... Raymond Poulidor and Joop Zudemelt that he's become famous for losing races rather or losing one race in particular rather than all his his wins you know and uh, on the back he he released an autobiography shortly before he died and um, on on the back of it the, the kind of the famous quote is uh, hey oh, hey you're Lauren Finian the the guy who lost the tour by 8 seconds and he'd say no I'm Lauren Finian the guy who won the tour twice it, it really was unfortunate that he has become remembered for losing that tour because he he was a fantastic like he won Milan San Remo twice to back to back and uh, those victories were great. Like the first time he, he did kind of the, I suppose, what's the standard attacking approaches by attacking on the Poggio. But then the following year, everyone was looking at him, waiting for him to attack on the Poggio. And instead, he attacked a few kilometers before the base of the Poggio and, and won, uh, yeah. you know, solo. And uh, it was just unbelievably impressive rider. And in fact, he's the last rider to have ever won uh, the Tour de France and the Monument Classic. Nobody's ever done that since. And, um, you know, and he, he did he did do very well in the classics. You know, most most Tour de France winners in, in the recent history have been kind of lambasted for not giving the classics a go, like Indurain and Armstrong and, and now Contador recently enough. Um, but like Fignon, he, he made the podium in, in Roubaix, in, Par- in Paris-Roubaix. He, yeah. he finished on a podium in 1988. And as I said, he won the Lancer twice. He was always up there in Liège-Bastogne-Liège and he won flesh well on. So, like, he, he really was a fantastic all-around rider. It's funny, though, because, I mean, we know we've talked about the 93 Tour really being your kind of entry drug, if you like, to yeah. cycling. Um, and for me, it was, I think, the 84 Tour. And Fignon, at his best, was every bit as exciting to watch as, you know, Armstrong or Contador or whoever. Yeah. I mean, he was just, he was this interesting combination of incredible athlete. But incredible self-belief and arrogance. I mean, I remember he passed... Um, I was outraged because I was a, a bit of an Eno fan. And he passed Eno when Eno had gone for a long attack. And I think it was think it was the 84 tour. And laughed in his face. Can you imagine having the balls to laugh in Bernardino's face? Yeah. like just, I mean, just, That's a proper cyclist. Yeah. Just to put a bit of a colour on those two tours that he won. Like in the 1983 tour, um, Bernardino had won four out of the last five. And they were teammates. Eno and Finian at the time, and but then Eno was injured for the 1983 tour. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, and all of a sudden, um, Finian became the the, the the team leader, and uh, um, uh, he 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 ended up winning it. But afterwards, he um, he said that he was being accused of being a, a Roger Walkoviak, and it was a bit of a stolen victory. He he was the French rider who won the tour in 1956, I think 1956 or Yeah. Um, where where he ended up in this long breakaway and and he, it was a famous as a bit of a bit of an odd victory 
And uh, but but Finian was was accused of of uh, of winning in this manner that he didn't really deserve it. All all the good champions weren't there. But in the 1984 Tour de France, Eno was back. He was back to what he he reckoned was his best. And uh, Finian was on a different team at that stage. And um, Finian wiped the floor with everybody. He won five stages and won the tour by ten minutes. And and you know after the '83 tour where people said he hadn't proved himself, by God did he prove it in 1984? No, it was stunning to watch. And I mean that was the La Vie Claire team with Paul Cochley that had been formed around Dino. So um, I love Fignon, great rider, and you know, eighty-four zero, he was beaten by Moser, and the Italians had to resort to using a helicopter in the time trial to let Moser. Yeah, and it was more than that. There was a mountain stage before that final time trial, and uh, Fignon was all geared up for his big attack, and I think he was only a minute and a half behind uh, Moser, and um, they they shut, they they cut the stage, they they um, they got rid of the Stelvio. And said the weather was too bad, <laughs> and uh, Finian reckoned the weather wasn't bad at all, and they were just doing it to to make it easier for Moser. And uh, so, so they got rid of that mountain. To, it, it removed Finian's opportunity to attack. And then, yeah, as you say in the time trial, they, <laughs> Finian complained of the helicopter being too low and 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 uh, affecting his uh, affecting his his time. Well, I think the helicopter was really low and had its blades pushed towards his front in the time yeah. trial and was really low and was following behind Moser, so pushing him along. So it was uh, it, it was a manufactured victory for Moser. It, and, and it could have been so much different for Finian. You, you know, like we say, we still remember him for losing the 1989 Tour. But like, if he had won that 1984 Giro... He won the 1984 Tour, and if he had won that 1989 Tour de France, he won the 1989 Giro as well. So, I mean, we could have been talking about a back-to-back Giro Tour winner. You know, it just could have been so much different. But having said that, it's still a Palmares that uh, puts him up amongst the greats. So, you know, goodbye, Laurent. It was a shame to lose him at 50, but lots of good memories. definitely. Now, we'll finish up here. Um, this is, I think, no secret because I was swearing on Twitter yesterday, the second day which we've been trying to record this show due to the wonders of bandwidth and Skype. But uh, we're finished now and I've really enjoyed it. So if you enjoyed the show, please leave a comment on iTunes because that really helps other people find the show. And if you want to chuck Kelly in some beer money, uh, you can do it via velocast.cc. Just leave a donation and let us know that it's it's aimed towards Killian and we'll make sure he gets at least one penny out of every £100 donated. And we'll talk to you next week. See you later. Mm-hmm.